Daniel chapter 11. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will arise, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed, together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. Someone from within her family will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army, larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army, fully equipped. In those times many will rise against the king of the south. Those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfilment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. But his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. After this, he will turn back towards the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall, to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendour. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honour of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people he will rise to power. 
When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favour to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will... Still come at the appointed time. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honour a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honour with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honour those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distrib- dis- distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end of the king of the south will engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Cushites in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. We are going to have two more sermons in the book of Daniel, 11 and 12. And we are in the second part of the book, which is this apocalyptic, prophetic section that looks forward in Daniel's eyes to future events 
and we see some of the things that have happened and some things which are to come. So Daniel chapter 11. And as we think about the book of Daniel in general, I think one of the most important things that God is doing through the book of Daniel is that he is giving us right expectations for the future. He's setting our expectations for things that are to come. So for the Israelites, as they um, come to the end of this 70 years of captivity in Babylon, and they look forward to returning to the land of promise of Israel that God had promised they would go back to in the book of Jeremiah. The great danger for them as they look forward to that is they might do what we probably all do after a time of difficulty and a time of crisis, which is that you get home, you make a cup of tea, you fall and collapse onto the sofa, and you hope and pray that's never going to happen again. But of course, that isn't the right expectation to have, is it? And that wouldn't be the right expectation for the Israelites to have. Because right through the second half of the book of Daniel, in chapters 7 through to 12, the end of the book, God has been preparing his people for trouble into the future. And the big message is of that second half of the book is that the troubles that Daniel and his friends experienced personally in chapters 1 to 6 will always be the pattern for God's people into the future. Evil rulers will rise up. They will seek to try and take the place of God in our lives. They will tempt us to sin in different ways. But we must not give in because God alone is king. And we can be confident that God will deliver either in this life or in the life to come. Because in the end, God wins. And that is how the narrative section, chapters 1 to 6, are connected to the apocalyptic prophetic section, verses 7 to 12. It's the same message throughout, but just communicated in different ways. One through a historical record of the experience of the exiles, and then in 7 to 12 through prophecy about the future. So that's how it all comes together. It's all about expectations for the Christian life. But as we work through these final chapters, particularly from chapter 7 onwards, it has been challenging at times, hasn't it? It's been stretching. It's reassuring to remember that in chapter 10, uh, James reminded us there that a godly, mature believer, Daniel himself, was overwhelmed by these visions. And then as we come to chapter 12 and verse 8, Daniel says, I heard but I didn't understand. So we come to this passage with carefulness because in chapter 11, some things are very clear, some things are less clear, and some things really are very unclear. And that's okay. It's okay because God, in his wisdom, has chosen to reveal the truth here in this way for a purpose. And we might not grasp everything now. We have more confidence about things going on here than the Israelites would have had looking forward to things that were going to happen. But we may not grasp everything, and that may only come through time, through growing wisdom, and maybe not until we get to eternity, to be with the Lord in heaven, will all of our questions be answered. 
But that does not mean that we shouldn't work hard to understand it. As one author put it, whom I read this week, there is much profit for us in this prophetic section of the book. And so with the Spirit's help, as we delve into these verses, we're going to see three things in this chapter, chapter 11. And we begin as we see that we're going to take in the big view, and as we do that, be amazed by the detail. Now, I want to begin by showing you a a historical artifact. Are you ready? A historical artifact. Here you go. Okay? This is a historical artifact. It is called, if you've never seen one, boys and girls, it's called a road map. Okay? It's what your parents used to navigate before there were sat-navs and tom-toms and all these other things that we used to get around. And believe it or not, before they went on a journey, they got one out and they actually looked at it and planned where they might go. Because they knew that you can take the stress out of a journey if you know where you're going. Now, we just get into the car and we turn on Google Maps or whatever else you use and we just trust Google to get us there safely. But they planned the route because they knew that if you can see the big picture of where you're going, then that gives you confidence as you set out on a difficult journey. And that's what we need to do as we begin our journey through this chapter because there are four sections to Daniel chapter 11. Four main sections. And they each describe things in the future for Daniel. Now, I'm not a big one for drawings, but I managed this drawing on my computer this week. And this is, uh, I put to you um, what I think is a timeline of Daniel chapter 11. Now, breaks into four sections. You'll see on the left-hand side, there's Daniel. Uh, there's us further down on the right. And there's the Lord Jesus' return in glory uh, right on the far right-hand side. So, Verses 2 to 4, if you look in your Bibles, verses 2 to 4, that's the first section. That covers the reign of the kings of the Media Persian Empire. That's 538 to 331 BC, thereabouts. And the reign of Alexander the Great, which is 335 to 323. And that's verses 2 to 4. And it comes to the end there with a division of Alexander's kingdom between the four generals who served Alexander, who then themselves form four different kingdoms. And that's verses 2 to 4. That's the first section. Then, as we come to verses 5 to 20, those verses describe some of the history of two of the kingdoms of those generals. Okay, The four generals broken down from Alexander's kingdom, and two of those kingdoms were the kingdoms of the south, which is the Ptolemies in Egypt, and the kingdoms of the north, which is the Seleucids in Syria. And these are the kings of the north and the kingdoms of the south. And we heard about those in verses 15 to 20. That's the second section of the passage, 5 to 20. Then the third part of the passage is verses 21 to 35, which then zooms in to focus in on one king, the reign of one king whom... We know all about because the men are already in Daniel chapter 8. Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who was a king of the Seleucid Empire from 175 to 163 BC. Third section of the passage. And if you look at the uh, diagram there, you'll see that Daniel is before all of those kings and kingdoms. And then we come to verses 36 to verse 45, which is the most debated section in the passage, probably one of the most debated sections of the book of Daniel. 
which seem, as you read them, to flow on from Antiochus Epiphanes, but there is a shift both in terms of the content and in terms of the intensity, and they don't seem to be describing Antiochus Epiphanes. And we think these verses describe events that are in our future as well. Do you see where we are in the diagram? We're before that, and we think they are describing... Another king who will rise up at the end of history, just before the return of the Lord Jesus, who is probably the Antichrist, the Antichrist, whom Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And about a year ago, I think it was, we were working through 2 Thessalonians, and we looked at those verses together. And that's what we think uh, that final section is describing. Now, this description of Antiochus Epiphanes in that third section and the description of the Antichrist in the fourth section seem to merge together. And one of the reasons why they do that is that they are connected. Because the Bible teaches us there isn't just one Antichrist, but there are many who operate according to the spirit of the Antichrist. So every wicked ruler, like Antiochus Epiphanes, And others who function in similar ways are operating according to the spirit of Antichrist, who is then going to come finally at the end in those final verses. So if you just keep the diagram up, guys. Um, So if verses 36 to 45 are about future events, what we're reading there is future events recorded in apocalyptic symbolic language. And that is why we have to be extremely careful how we interpret them. Because there is much that we're just not sure exactly how it's all going to be fulfilled. So, if we were to use a literal interpretation to all the details there in verses 36 to 45, that would be unwise. Let me tell you why. Well, if we followed in the literal approach um, to what's described, if you look down at verse 40 in the passage, you'll notice a reference there to chariots and cavalry. Now, we know that chariots and cavalry are not part of modern military machinery, are they? So even that description there, speaking of future things in apocalyptic prophetic language, that can't be totally literal in how it's being described. Otherwise, the cavalry and the chariots are going to make a comeback in the future. And that's not likely to happen, given the nature of military progress, is it? So if those descriptions aren't literal, are symbolic in some way, then surely... There will be other things there in verses 36 to 45 that are also symbolic. Now, we're going to touch on a few of the details in that final section, but you're not surprised to hear that we're not going to spend most of our time there. What we're going to do is take in the big view of the passage, and having taken in that big view of how it's all broken down, having tried to chart our way through it, one thing that's really significant to highlight is a detailed description of events particularly in those middle two sections on the kings of the north and the south and on Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, we do not have time to trace all this through. But if you go home this evening, if you have a study Bible at home, open up a study Bible and just look at the notes, a faithful study Bible, and you will find there is an amazing correspondence between what is described there Events that to Daniel, as he heard them, were in the future, and things that really happened in human history in the area of that time. It's really, really amazing. It's about five pages in my study Bible. 
find a good commentary or do something similar. And it's astonishing the accuracy of what's described. Now remember, that's all predictive prophecy for Daniel. It's all in the future for Daniel. Now for us, we have the amazing privilege because where do we stand? We stand over there and we look back and what do we see? We see it's happened, that it's been fulfilled. Now let me just give you one sample of this. Look at verse 6 of chapter 11. After some years, they will become allies, speaking of the two kings, north and the south. And the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance. But she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, will be betrayed together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. Now, if you go back and, and look at the history of what we know, that there was in AD 250, uh, sorry, that's going to be uh, BC 250, so, uh, hang on. BC 250, uh, there was Ptolemy II, the king of the south, who attempts to make peace with Antiochus II, the king of the north, by sending his daughter, Berenice, to marry him. It sounds just like this. A daughter's going to marry in the connection there between the kings. And then Antiochus, the king of the north, plans to divorce his wife, Laodice, and marry Berenice. However, Laodice has both Antiochus and Berenice poisoned fulfilling the prophecy that the daughter of the king of the south will not retain her power and be destroyed. And then, in the same year that she dies, her father, Ptolemy II, dies in Egypt, so he is also betrayed. That's just one verse, verse 6. And there are many others in this passage where the historical accuracy of the predictions is astonishing. Now just imagine what they would have been like if you've been an Israelite living in 250 BC and you are watching the events of world history developing and you were reading about it in scripture because God had spoken about it hundreds of years before it happened. It had been amazing, wouldn't it? It would have been so faith-building because Israel, don't forget, are right in the middle of this because there's kings in the north and kings in the south and where are they? Well, they're in the center, okay? And they've got all these armies going north and south and themselves being taken over by different kings and kingdoms. And that wouldn't have been easy, would it? It would have been a hard time. But in all of the elements of the hardship of these events, they would be reminded they are not an accident. They might cause pain, but they should not lead to panic. Because God, in revealing to them that they were going to happen... What was he teaching them? He was saying he knows it all, he's in control of it all, and he is working through it all. And so what confidence that would give to them about the trustworthiness of God and his word, wouldn't it? What confidence that would give them about the scriptures. That if God is predicting the patterns of these events, they could know that what God says, not just about those events was true as they see them worked out, but also what God says about the future is also true. Because if God gets it right here, we know he's going to get it right in the future also. Now, just think where we stand on that timeline. Can it go back up again, Michael, that timeline? Where are we? Well, we are privileged to be able to look back and not live through these events, but, but see these events having happened. 
And we can look back and we can see all of these fulfillments. And so we can say that if God speaks with accuracy about those events, then surely also he speaks with accuracy about future events also. But we can know it with even greater weight because we've got all of these things fulfilled that are mentioned in those first 35 verses. What confidence that gives us as believers. You know, we live in a very uncertain world, don't we? So much is changing. So much is unknown. God knows. God is in control. God is someone I can trust through it all. It steadies us. But can I also say, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're delighted you're here, but if you're here and you're not a Christian, then this chapter is a great warning to you. Because that principle of God saying it will happen and it comes true, that you see worked out here in history, applies to everything we find in God's word. And in the Bible, God clearly speaks about a day coming in the future again and again and again and again. And on that day, God says that the record of your life and my life will be opened up. On that day, we will all be judged, God says, And none of us will be able to say that we have done enough to to earn entry to God's perfect heaven. Because if we're honest, we know that we haven't lived as we should. And in fact, if we're really honest, we will all know that we have done wrong that deserves God's just judgment in hell. And God tells us there is but one hope. There is but one means of rescue, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to bear the fullness of the eternal punishment for all those who will believe in him. And so faith in Christ is the only way you can be spared from that judgment that is to come. And to enter into, as we read in the psalm this week in the home group, all the good things of heaven, the great things of heaven. And can I put it to you that if you're here and you're not a Christian... This passage is a strong reason why you can know that day is coming. Because God doesn't lie. And so are you ready for that day when you stand before the God of heaven and your life is opened up and you are judged? You can only be ready in Christ. But Christ has come that you might be ready. So look to him by faith. If you want to know more about that, Speak to me afterwards. Boys and girls, maybe you're here this evening and you've heard this again many times, but maybe this evening, maybe tonight you need to act upon this. Come speak with me afterwards. I'll speak to my own dad and he'd love to say, share more with you. That's the the big view of this passage. But now we need to jump into some of the detail. We need to move quickly. And we need to see this passage teaches us to have right expectations, secondly, about human history. In all the busyness of this chapter, there are significant patterns. And sometimes in a passage where there's lots going on, really important to spot the patterns, isn't it? And one of the big patterns is the instability of the kingdoms of our worlds. Again and again and again, we read about a king who seems to be so strong and so powerful, and then they're defeated. (laughs) And then another king comes along, and they seem so strong and powerful and great with a massive army, and then they're defeated. You see it there in verses 10 and 11, if you look at those verses. You've got the sons of the king of the north come and assemble and bring a great army, and it sweeps through like an irresistible flood, and then the king of the south marches out with rage and fights against the king of the north, and he's defeated. 
And there's this sense of instability and changes in leadership. Again and again, as you go through the passage, it's brought out by the fact that Daniel uses the word but 19 times because it's changed and it's changed and it's changed and it's changed. This passage is a bit like a game of risk. You know when you play risk at home and you get to the point in the game where everyone is building up their risk cards and they've got like five, six, seven risk cards and you know at any moment people are going to start playing when they're going to get 20, 25, 30 armies at the start of their turn. And then as one player does that, one after the other, you get these sweeps of change in the board, don't you? You get all one colour, all the next colour. All one kind of, well, not all, but you know what I mean. It just sweeps back and forth. It's like that, really. But we need to remember that the kingdoms here in this passage are unstable because their leaders are evil. That was a repeated pattern as we went through. They were motivated by the sinful desires of their hearts. And the instability comes from these evil desires working out in the military conquests. Now, if you, if you like the history, it's fascinating, isn't it? But we mustn't forget that this involves fathers and sons going out in their hundreds and thousands to die in battle. So it's actually not a game of risk, is it? This is real men dying in battles, leaving behind wives and families without protection and provision. And then we see other Wrong, horrible things going on. Verse 17, we read of a king giving his daughter in marriage to another king in order to overthrow them. It's not how fathers should care for their daughters, is it? It's not in keeping with God's purposes for marriage. And then, of course, we're told why this all happens. It's because the nations are ruled by kings who, verse 11, are filled with rage, who acted, verse 12, according to the pride of their hearts, who did, verse 16, whatever they pleased. And then we rightly shudder and remember, sin's a horrible thing, isn't it? It's a horrible thing, and especially when that sinful wickedness motivates our actions, especially when it motivates the actions of leaders of our nations. How we should pray how we should pray, as I know we do, for our leaders and pray that God would restrain the hands of those who plot and plan according to sinful motivations. And this pattern of instability and change reminds us that change is always around the corner in any ruler and in any kingdom. However good a ruler might be, however bad they might be, Change is always potentially just around the corner, isn't it? To paraphrase one Christian economist, God's word teaches us that the only certainty is uncertainty. And that applies in every aspect of the kingdoms of our world, economic, political, military, social. Now, we are rightly thankful for relative peace and stability that we enjoy in our own country and mostly in the Western world. But alongside that piece, I sense in recent years a growing expectation in many that our leaders and our governments will be able to protect us from all trouble, to grant to us stability 
throughout all of our lives. And that's not right, is it? That's not right. They can't do that. However wise and skillful they might be, they are sinners with human limitations. And therefore, however stable things might appear, change is always, potentially, just around the corner. And one of the things this passage is doing for us is to teach us that we should not expect too much of our governments and our national leaders. So what will sustain the Israelites as they live through the turmoil and the change of this chapter? What will give us stability as we live through similarly challenging times? Well, it's not the stability of leaders, because they come and go. It is the reign of our God. That's the second big thing that comes out as a pattern. History is not random. And neither is it a case of whoever is most powerful getting on top. Sometimes that happens, but that's not always the case. Ultimately, God reigns and God is in control. You know, as you read through the chapter, the Lord's name is rarely used in this chapter, but the markers of his activity are all over it. Let's just look at a few of them together. Jump back to verse 4 with me as we go to the end of the reign of Alexander. Notice the active verbs there that describe the end of his kingdom. It will be broken up and parceled out. There is a deliberate uprooting of his empire, and then it is given to others. Well, who's doing that? God's doing that. God is in control. And then as we zoom out on the big picture of the chapter, we will notice that all of the events here are described in terms of what will happen. It's not may. It's not could. It's not might. In fact, the word I will or shall in other versions, sorry, the word will or shall in other versions is used 120 times in the chapter. It will happen, it will happen, it will happen. Because future events are spoken about with certainty because God is in control. Another marker of God's control is the repeated phrase, at the appointed time. You get it in verse 27, end of the verse. You get it in verse 29, start of the verse, and then at the end again of verse 35, at the appointed time. Whose appointed time? God's appointed time. And then even the ends of the kings and rulers, and particularly the final ruler, uh, there, the, the figure there in verses 36 to 45, that is under God's control. We read verse 45, he will come to his end and no one will be able to help him. It's not chaos. It's not random. God is in control. Our, wor- our God reigns. And the total reign of our God is the source of ultimate comfort for the people of God. That's what we rest in. Now let's bring that home to day-to-day life. How often is it that we hear about the possibility of a change in government policy or perhaps of a change in the ruling party and we begin to worry what that might mean for our bank balance, for our business prospects, for our jobs and for everything else? Now, those changes might be hard to bear. They might hurt us in different ways. But whatever pain they bring, 
they should not cause us to panic because God is in control. And our hope is in him, in his good purposes, which can sometimes include dark valleys in our lives. And we can always rejoice in the secure blessings of eternal life and not ultimately in whatever temporary blessings the Lord might give us here and now in this life. This passage reminds us to keep on trusting in our God who reigns. So those are two of the big patterns. The instability of the kings of the world and our need not to trust in them, but the stability of the reign of our God and our faith and trust in him. But then we come to the third thing. And the third thing that's a clear pattern in this passage is that we are to expect persecution and prepare for it. We started thinking, didn't we, at the beginning about the importance of setting right expectations. And that's the final expectation this passage gives to us. That as God's people, we should expect trouble and persecution. And the Lord's people are often targeted by evil rulers. That seems to be rarer under the kings of the north and the south, but it does happen as you go through. And it's certainly a feature there of the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. So in verses 29 to 35, we have a description there of his military failures in Egypt. And then because he he has a failure in Egypt, he vents his fury against what is described as the Holy Covenant. Now, the Holy Covenant refers to the people of God. So he focuses anger against God's people because things go wrong for him in Egypt. And in verse 31, he comes and he desecrates the temple. Verse 33, some of God's people suffer and die. And then also, as we go on to the Antichrist figure in verse 41, he comes and invades this beautiful land, which might not be a literal invasion of Israel, but it's symbolic of pressure coming against the people of God through this Antichrist figure. So what's the picture? Well, the picture is that God's people are put under pressure by rulers. They are always and so often in the crosshairs of evil rulers. Over the half term, we uh, went down to London and visited the Tower of London one day. And you can go in the different towers through the amazing uh, buildings there. And in one room, there was an exhibition of some of the instruments of torture that was used for those who were imprisoned in the tower. And I looked it up, and, and one lady who was tortured, one of the only women tortured in the Tower of London, was a lady called Anne Askew. She was a committed believer. She was tortured on the rack. She stood firm. She wouldn't renounce her beliefs. She wouldn't name other followers of Jesus. And she was later burned at the stake. Persecution has happened in the past. We know it happens in many countries in the present. And we know it will come in the future. And we are to expect that and prepare for it. And we can learn how to do that by looking as we come to a close at the wise and unwise responses of those who know the Lord through this pressure. So look with me at verses 29 to 36. Because in those verses, we see how God's people respond to the pressure that comes under Antiochus Epiphanes. But in doing so, they show us how we can respond to pressure and persecution as it comes. And what do we see? We see that some of the Lord's people there will forsake 
Some of those who say they're Lord's people will forsake. And we can learn from them. In 29 and 28, Antiochus Epiphanes sets his heart against the people of God, vents his fury against them. And in verse 32, we read that he flatters some of those people of God who have violated the covenant. Now, these ones who have violated the covenant are those who abandon the Lord and his people when pressure comes. And they forsake the Lord because they never really knew the Lord. That's a warning against apostasy. And the call to remain faithful to the Lord even when the pressure builds. It's very interesting in verse 35 that it says that those who are wise will instruct many. And that reminds us that one of the ways in which we help each other to keep going in our walk with the Lord is to do what? We speak truth to one another often. On Sunday, uh, we were worshipping in Hillfield's church in Coventry because we were on holiday. And uh, Jim Merkitt was there preaching. And he was pressing home that important reality and command to speak the truth to one another as the Lord's people. He loved a, used a lovely illustration, which was so real, uh, of what you do when you're driving on a long journey, and it's dark, and you're tired, and what do you feel going on? You feel like you're starting to just perhaps not off. And what do you say to the passenger? You say, hang on, hang on, you need to talk to me and keep me awake because I'm struggling. You speak to them, and you keep them alert. And as God's people, we need to speak to each other that we might call one another to keep on trusting the Lord because some will forsake. Secondly, some will be refined. And we can learn from them as well. True believers who are here described as wise in verse 35, it says they will stumble and struggle under pressure of persecution. But their stumbling will not lead to them forsaking the Lord because through it, God is refining them such that they are being purified and made spotless. That's an encouraging thing to see. Because if you find yourself struggling in times of trouble and when you're under pressure in that sense and you wonder, what is God doing? Well, God's doing that, isn't he? God is purifying us God is refining us, and God will make us spotless when the Lord Jesus returns. So don't lose heart when you find troubles difficult. Don't question whether you're really the Lord's because it's a struggle. Instead, keep going in the assurance that God is using even times of persecution to make us more holy and to strengthen us in him. Some will be refined in those times of persecution. Then thirdly and finally, some will remain faithful, and we can learn most from them. Look at verse 32, end of the verse. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. What a lovely summary of what it means to stand firm. And what is the key to resisting the pressure that comes there under persecution and not being deceived by the lies of this uh, evil leader? Knowing God, the people who know their God. That's the key, communion with God. And that is the real and precious experience of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's you this evening if you're a Christian. 
And the key to keeping faithful and keeping going when that pressure comes is keeping on knowing God. Keeping on treasuring that relationship with God. It's wonderfully simple, isn't it? But it's incredibly powerful. Because when you know God, you have the most valuable relationship in the whole cosmos. Knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. And that's a treasure that no one can take from you, can they? No one can take it. Evil rulers might threaten your body or even your life, but they cannot touch your communion with God. They cannot touch your relationship with God. And he is our treasure, so even in death, we don't lose, do we, as Paul says? Because we gain, because we gain more of the Lord. And so we remain faithful under trials through the precious privilege of knowing God. And friends, that's how believers, that's how God's people have always endured. Whether it's faithful believers under Antiochus Epiphanes, whether it's Anne Askew there in the Tower of London, or whether it's a thousand who are being persecuted today in countries like North Korea and Afghanistan. And that's how we will persevere by the grace of God should pressure come in the future. So if we want to be prepared for that pressure, as I know we do, may it come in our lifetimes. What do we need to do? We need to go deeper and deeper into knowing our God. And we need to encourage one another to keep on saying, know the Lord. Isn't it a great thing to be a Christian? Isn't it a great thing to know the God of heaven? Because as you know God more deeply, and as you treasure that relationship more fully, then God enables us to stand firm, whatever happens. May God give grace, and may his spirit help us as we stand in him.